Thank you so much. I mean, I wouldn't even think about October being Pastor Appreciation Month, but you're, I am blessed to be your pastor, truly, truly blessed. Yeah. Well, huh? It doesn't seem like it's been over two and a half years to me, does it? But it has. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, today we are going to turn to the book of Revelation. I mean, we're going to turn to Revelation. We'll be in Revelation for the next several weeks. You know, last Sunday, we took an opportunity to conclude our dissection, our messages, and the application we had through the book of Nahum. We looked upon the oracle of Nahum and seen that he prophesied the events that would actually occur upon the great city of Nineveh in 612 B.C. That once great city was decimated, destroyed, completely eradicated. It was all due to their return to their evil, wicked, ruthless ways. Just like a dog returning to its vomit, the once great city that had previously had a generation revival had a new generation that arose that returned to all the wickedness, all the evil, all those bad atrocities they placed upon people and nations, they returned to all that. And then as a result, God was angered and he dealt very harshly with the city. Now you may recall throughout the entire series, it was a small series, only like three, four weeks in length, only three chapters in the book of Nahum. But throughout the series, we've kept finding one common theme that we introduced and we have it here once more today before we put it to rest. The study, the message pertained to the fact that Nahum gave us a theme that one generation's revival guarantees nothing for the next. We've seen, we talked, we have evidence how the generation that heard the preaching from Jonah 150 years prior to Nahum, they had truly repented from their ruthlessness, from their sins. I mean, from the evil, torturous atrocities they forced upon people and nations, they repented from that. They fasted for the sackcloth and walked away from it. The king himself, even, all indicated throughout the book of Jonah that's what happened. But 150 years later, unfortunately, a new generation or generations comes upon the scene, and they did not continue in the spirit of the revival we see in Jonah. Now, we took that then and we had a final application last week. And the final application last week discovered, unfortunately, that some similar circumstances seemingly are applying and in our country in times today. I mean, our country is still known as a Christian country. God and Christianity was an integral part of the establishment of this country. But a lot has changed since 1776. It seems the immediate generation of the people that times kept God in the forefront. They honored him. They worshiped him. They adhered to all the biblical standards and had a worldview based upon the Bible. However, that really can no longer be said. In all the years that have passed, it seems that each subsequent generation has fallen away more and more from a biblical worldview. In fact, last week then, we introduced the newest generation, the Generation Z. Yeah, there's a Generation Alpha, which is the 2010 to today. But we concentrate on the Generation Z, which happens to be in our midst our 12 to 24 years. That generation, we found statistics last week, 
based upon the book written by James White. The book's called Meet Generation Z. His research found this, that the most defining mark of members of Generation Z in their terms of their spiritual lives is their spiritual illiteracy. They do not know what the Bible says. They do not know the basics of Christian belief or theology. They do not know what the cross is about. And they do not know what it means to worship. That's the majority of the generation of our teenage in the early 20s. The research indicates they hardly have any kind of relationship, if any at all, to Jesus. But there's more. In that 11 to 24-year-old age group, the Generation Z, generation born after 1997, they found this too. Generation Z is disconnecting completely from religion, spirituality, and the larger questions of life. In fact, the Barna Group, which does a lot of these types of studies, characterizes Generation Z as the first truly post-Christian generation. Listen, with only 4% adhering to biblical worldview. As a result, Scripture authority has come under fire and fewer teenagers are trusting what the Bible has to say about contemporary issues. Overall, barriers to faith and loss of interest in the church have led to increasing rates of atheistic and agnostic beliefs. The teenagers I discussed this with last week told me they have atheist friends at school. Your students, your children probably have someone they know at the school who is an atheist, or certainly would be agnostic. The Barner Group discovered the percentage of teens who identify as atheists is double that of the adult population. That's where we are, folks. That's the generation up on the horizon. That's our leaders of tomorrow. Our leaders that will be leading us as we're in nursing homes or wherever, there's only four out of 100 that have any kind of biblical perspective or worldview. I mean, 96 out of 100 could care less about your beliefs, my beliefs, the fact that we're meeting here today, or any kind of faith that we have. Now, that should be very concerning to us, that 96 out of 100 have no desire. They could take it or leave it when it comes to Christianity. Now, we noted that last week in our last speeches of Nahum. And we said, well, what can we do about it then? Well, the first thing we better do is pray about it. And we must pray, but lead and guide and direct our generation to the truth. But I say that because I want us to recognize that's not all we must do. I mean, to lead, to guide, to direct our young generation to truth they need to receive is to first evaluate ourselves. We must ask ourselves some painful questions. Have we grown complacent and cold in our Christian walk? I mean, is it possible that this new generation that could care less about Christianity is, is less concerned about the biblical worldview? I mean, could it be because of our actions or the lack of as it relates to the Bible? I mean, are we somehow leading them in the wrong way. I mean, it's a painful examination to be able to go through this, perhaps, but it's where we need to start. 
I mean, think about it. How can we expect our children, these teenagers, to have a biblical worldview and perspective if we do not? Or somehow we've fallen away. Or it's just no longer a priority. So to help us with this examination, we turn to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, the seven churches we're going to find in Revelation chapters 2 and chapter 3. It's going to take us several weeks to get through. We're going to find it was real churches. Not all of them exist today, but nonetheless, they are worth examining because they all have a specific thing they can introduce to us and have us to apply and to think through. But they all also have a special time, a period in church history that was relevant. For example, we're going to find our first church today is Ephesus. And Ephesus, according to scholars, would have a historical relevance in a period of A.D. 33, just after Christ died, to about A.D. 100, which is the early establishment of the church. That's the time period that Ephesus, that we'll study, can relate to church history. But it goes further. Smyrna, which would be the second church we'll have in a couple of weeks, would have a time frame of approximately 100 A.D. to A.D. 314, and would represent the church during the period of martyrdom. The third church would be Pergamum, and we're going to find it has a relevance of maybe 183.14 to 85.90. And I could continue to give all those to you, but it's not important yet to receive all that. But what is important is recognize there is an association of period of church history to the churches that we're going to talk about for the next several weeks. But as we think about that, here's what we also need to know before we read anything, before we go any further. Although that can be true, how it pertains to a particular period of church history, we don't need to close our minds and think, well, that was then and this is now. Because we need to realize that every church we shall go through, seven churches, that all the letters to the churches have great significance and tremendous relevance to the church in our modern day. And the first church, perhaps, is the one that we best start with to prove that. It is Ephesus, known as the church that lost its first love, or the church that is known as the loveless church. And it brings up then the question before we do our reading. question maybe we entertain for today is, is the church in America the loveless church? Is the church in general terms in America today the loveless church? Something to ponder and contemplate as we begin our study and reading going through the seven churches. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 2. Stand with me if you're able to as we stand to honor the reading of the word. Seven verses pertaining to Ephesus. Here's where we find the word tells us as John is writing. He says, first of all, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, he said, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, Father. We come before you today, Lord, just asking for your spirit to lead us and to guide us and direct us. As we begin to maybe self-examine ourselves today, Lord, of our spirituality, we pray, Lord, you'll directly talk to our hearts. Let us hear these words, the words that I say today would not be my words, but the words of the spirit that you want us to hear. Let's evaluate our lives, Lord, as Christians, as believers. If somehow, some way, we need to revive or to be recommitted today, Lord, let us receive that. Let's commit our way to you today. So be thankful here today, Lord, for what you're going to do for us to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the most difficult things about preaching and or teaching from the book of Revelation is the decision on how much to include in explanation. Because the apocalyptic book just begs and begs for explanation and explanation. And it's nearly impossible to provide an adequate explanation and application at the same time in a 30-minute message. But with that said, may God bless the effort we're about to embark upon. Because we'll go back to the text in Revelations 2, and verses 1 through 4. And we find here initially, as John is writing now to this first church in Ephesus, that he gives some words of commendation. In the very beginning, we find primarily verses 2 and 3, you find words there where he knows what they're doing. He, he, he namely says they're patient, they are enduring, and if I could use a word to classify and describe what they're going through, he said they're steadfast, they remain faithful. So we see some words of commendation in the beginning, particularly verses 2 and 3. But it quickly changes in verse 4. The letters sent to the church of Ephesus not only has that accommodation at the beginning, but then quickly changes to a condemnation. Look in verse 4 once more. He says, I have this against you, as you've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, if you have the King James, maybe it's just more spelled out simply, where it says, you have lost your first love. And perhaps that immediately just screams out as relevance in our society today because we see then, as we found out with Generation Z, unfortunately, they are not coming to Jesus. They have no inclination to do so. So they evidently not even received their first love according to statistics in general terms. So that's the right application we need to make. But before we do so, Let's not rush in too quickly. Let us just have a general observation first and ask the question, are we today living in a loveless society? That's a thought to ponder as we think about what John is writing here before we correctly apply it then to the church and the church maybe having lost its first love, is are we initially basically right now living in a loveless society? Many of you remember the Beatles. No relation, okay? I can't sing, no way. I'm not a, I am a Beatle, but not the Beatles, okay? But they had a song that sang, All You Need Is Love. You remember the song? All You Need Is Love. 
It was written by John Lennon with some credit going to Paul McCartney. But in its release in 1967, it was an instant smash of success. I was four years old, but I remember it. It was an instant smash of success. The song I learned had associated with it the first ever live global audience, a link in which it could be watched by 400 million people in 25 countries. That was big back then. I mean, if compared to today, you can watch an NFL football game and the whole world can see it at one time. So it's maybe not as tremendous today to see 400 million people in 25 countries. That was huge back then. It may be small time today, but it was big then. But the song was a great success because it just had a feel-good association with love. And it was accepted. But I wonder if that song was introduced today, if it would have the same amount of success. And we won't really know the answer. But if we think that maybe not, then maybe it's because our society does not so much care about love anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not certain pockets of love illustrated throughout. Because we still can find love. But on a larger scale, unfortunately, country, love is just not as evident as maybe it once was. And there's particular illustrations to maybe demonstrate and show this. The one I thought about was hate crimes. Hate crimes are on the rise and have been for many years. Each year, the FBI releases statistics that clearly shows, that clearly demonstrates that hate crimes have been increasing at an alarming rate. You can see it, you can hear about it on the news, seems like nearly every day. But unfortunately, it's increasingly more common to see violent acts carried out against certain people groups. Recently, maybe with the supposed link to COVID to Asians, to China, we see that the hatest crimes right now go to people who are Asians. Maybe because of the pandemic that we're in. And the association they have maybe with COVID. But hate crimes are also motivated by the hatred of certain religious affiliations. Like towards Jews or Muslims. But it's not limited to religion or to an association with pandemic. Statistics of hate crimes prove over and over again that 58% of hate crimes each year are motivated simply by a victim's race. Discrimination and racism still exist, even though we sometimes don't see it. Even going one step further, it's not just hate crimes that are increasing that maybe demonstrates that we're living maybe more in a loving society than we were back in 1967. Maybe it's not just that that illustrates that. Maybe it's what we see in schools today, that bullying is the largest problem in schools today. And it's not just bullying that actually occurs in schools, but the internet, something that sounds completely absurd is the fact that now we have cyberbullying. It just goes to show us how we live in a society that maybe has a little less love than it once did. And we could go probably on and on and show evidence of how we maybe have progressed to less love today than years prior. 
But we need to go back to the text because that's not really the application we're after. The application we're really after is how this verse, as John is writing it, that we're applying today, pertains to the church. Has the church lost its first love? Verse 4 tells us, I have this against you. He's writing to the church that truly existed in Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So a simple question we now ask ourselves, has the church today, in your mind, a rhetorical question, lost its first love? The first love defined by the love we should have for Jesus. Have we, in society, at large, church, country, in general, not crossroads, but all churches together, has the church today lost its first love, Jesus Christ? Have they waned in their love? Have they declined in the love they have for Christ? Because that should be our first love. We can love our spouse, we can love our children, but the first love we should have should be Jesus. Has the church today lost its first love? And the answer, if we look at statistics to determine if we've lost our first love, and the statistics being the church attendance, well then yeah, maybe we have, because if the decline in church attendance is any indication, then the answer would be yes. We are losing our first love. I have shared with you before statistics that demonstrates how churches are closing at a rapid, alarming rate. The Southern Baptist Convention, which we're part of, says that approximately 10 to 15% of Southern Baptist churches, perhaps like ours, are at risk of dying. Every year, about 900 churches close and lock their doors for the last time, with about 70% of them situated in growing neighborhoods. Now, I want you to look at that really closely behind me or here once more. Because it's alarming, yes, but notice how it says something that just leaps off the page. Notice how the Southern Baptist Convention stated that churches are closing in growing neighborhoods. Isn't it interesting how the neighborhood is growing, but the church is declining or closing? Further, the research on the trends of church attendance is even further disappointing. A few years ago, when I was doing some research for a similar type situation, I ran across an article that was titled this. Why is church attendance declining even among committed Christians? What a title. I mean, that immediately caught my attention. Why is church attendance declining even among committed Christians? Now, I read through the article, and there was way too much to elaborate on the article about why that was happening. Look at what it tells us. That even among committed Christians, a church attendance seems to be less and less. So what that means then, evidently, is that a lot has changed in 50, 60 plus years. I mean, just think about all the activities that are available today that we did not have 50 to 60 years ago. There was a time when it was common to attend church three times per week. But now it seldom occurs. Attending church three times per week is a thing of the past for most folks. We must ask ourselves why, and it's perhaps partly because many more things are just available. 
or that church is just not as important as it used to be. Before I came to Crossroads, pastor of Covert Avenue Baptist Church in Evansville, and we were the hosts of the Neighborhood Watch Association. We would have a meeting the first Thursday of each and every month. One particular month we were having our meeting, a gentleman came from our neighborhood. And he walked into the church. He was the first one there. He walked in, and I hadn't recognized him before. He was coming to one of the other meetings, so I introduced myself to him. And he said, oh, you're the new pastor. I've been there over two years at that particular point, about as long as I have been here now. So I wasn't the new pastor, but I was new maybe for him. But as we introduced ourselves then, he immediately then became curious. And he said, well, how's the church doing? Well, maybe a bit pridefully, I said, hey, we're doing great. I mean, that particular juncture, right after he came, we had just had our best attendance for Easter in the time that I had been there. And we had just established a new Wednesday afternoon Bible study that started with five people that had grown to 17. We started a new Sunday school class that started with a small group of people but became larger. We had to go to a bigger room. So things were getting better. We had visitors coming. We had a spirit of love in the church. A lot like what's ever happening right here, right now at Crossroads. The same type of atmosphere existed then as it does here. Love, growth spirituality, I mean, it's, just, it's love, it's great. Things were going well for us, and I privately told him that things were going well at Colbert Avenue Baptist Church. Well, then he received that, and he said, well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear things are going well. But before I could even ask him where he went to church, he volunteered information. He said, well, I go to the Methodist Church down the street. I said, well, good. I'm glad he went to church somewhere. But as he told me he went to church. He said, but I don't regularly attend at all that much anymore. Well, then I had to ask, what particular reason did he have for maybe not attending church anymore like he maybe did in the past? He kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I mean, I don't know. I just don't go much as much as I used to. I just don't go as much as I used to. And I was thinking, wow, I mean, this, this dude's just being honest with me. I mean, he's just telling me that he has an affiliation with the church, but he just doesn't go as much as he used to. He's just being honest. I'm thinking, wow, I mean, things have really changed. I mean, priorities are not what they used to be, apparently. I mean, the number of things that are available today has definitely made an impact on church attendance. And then maybe equally then to our first love. I had a church in Texas one time. A lady told me, the sun is shining now. We can see out the windows, but it was raining earlier, rain yesterday. But she told me shortly after we became pastor at the church, she said, Kurt, if it's raining, I'm not going to be at church. I said, oh, yeah, I mean, I can't get my hair messed up. I'm on it. This is for real. She did not come to church on a day it was raining. Her and her husband missed every Sunday it was raining, guaranteed. It just happened. Now, I, I think about that, and I contrast it in my mind then to like a church in North Korea or China or somewhere overseas that's having to travel early in the morning by dark, undercover, to get to a church that's probably not have any kind of air conditioning, no heat, stays in darkness, and is cold, and they worship for hours. Would we? 
if we had nothing of modern day convenience, would we still meet to worship God? Things have changed, it seems. So the question is, have we lost our first love? And I mean, the fact is then, when we love something, we pursue it. We desire it. We can't wait for it. When you truly love something, you make time for it, you run after it, you just want to be with something or someone you love. You can't wait for it. You pursue it. Think about any interest you have, your hobbies, your favorite pastimes. I was thinking about that this week and putting this message together, and I thought, wow, look at myself. Every morning I see myself in the mirror. I'm thinking, there's a dude right there that loves racing so much he gets so stupid excited about it that he's ready to just go wherever he has to to be in a race. And I do that every day, or I would. But when we have these favorite things we love to do, we pursue it, we desire it. And for you, it might be something similar. It might not be sprint car racing like Sheila. I mean, like Kayla and I like to do. Sheila goes occasionally. But Kayla and I are like diehards. But maybe it's something else for you that you just love. Maybe it's the opening day of baseball or football. Or maybe better yet, maybe it's Black Friday. You know Black Friday shopping? I have a brother-in-law that would get so excited about Black Friday shopping he would get the paper on Thanksgiving, right? And then he would go through every ad in the paper. He would research everything that was going to be sold. He would make a list of everything it was going to be at, what time he had to be there to get it. He got super excited, very enthusiastic about Black Friday shopping. And he was a dude. I didn't understand it. But we have something that we get excited about, that we're passionate about, that we love. Or one maybe better yet. Think about the time when you were courting or dating, when your romance blossomed. Well, it was a thrill, wasn't it? You anticipated, looking forward to being the person you're with, couldn't stand to be away from them, waiting for every moment to be together. It's your first love then, and Jesus is the first love, but that was your love then. But then you got excited to be the person you wanted to be with. Now contrast that feeling then to now. How about now? Has the candle burned out just a little bit? Fire not burning as bright as it once was? Take that then. Take that then and apply it to Christian life. And how we recognize that it might be the same. Or how it's so easy then to have something to become complacent and stagnant. To what was once exciting when we were saved, when that fire burned bright and continuously began to smolder, began to dim. I mean, the excitement we had right after coming forward and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior was sometime, however, over time replaced with staleness. Maybe something else grabbed our attention. If that is the case, we must ask ourselves in the self-examination what happened. Why did a complacent, stale, stagnant, nearly burned out candle result ultimately or currently in our lives as believers and Christians? Well, the answer might be 
similar to what's happening here at the church of Ephesus, who is described as losing their first love. And maybe the, the way they lost their first love is they simply began to put off the relationship to Jesus Christ. When you begin to put off any kind of relationship of anyone, it begins to wane. And the more you put it off, the more rapidly the relationship hardly even exists anymore. Because deteriorate, we can even, can't even call a relationship. Now let me tell you, as you think about that, it even happens to pastors. Not by vocational pastors necessarily, because they have other things sometimes they're engaged in. But full-time pastors are so busy sometimes it seems they go through burnout or they have stress or they lose their first love because of everything that's happening. I mean, you might be surprised to find out it can happen to a man delivering God's word, but it does happen. I've met men on a hunting trip who was a guide that was once a pastor. I just left it. I was surprised shortly after I came to this Baptist association that we're part of now that a thriving church in Evansville had a pastor to lead them to become an electrician. It just happens. It happens. It happens to a pastor. I mean, probably multiple factors are, are, are involved. But it just it tells us that living your first love happens when you begin to put off a relationship. When you get put off a relationship, it, it just grows some distance. And sometimes you never close the distance. You don't have contact anymore. I mean, think about it. Have you ever put off a relationship in your life? I think about it, I recognize I have many times. I graduated high school in 1981 last Friday, two days ago, we had our 40th class reunion. I could care less about it. I don't care about going to a class reunion. And, and one reason why is because I don't know them people anymore. And I was best friends with some of those folks in high school. But again, to put off that relationship, I put it off and put it off, lost contact completely with the people. And I was really good friends with most of them in that class. We had yearbooks. Remember the yearbooks in school? Everybody would sign them. I had people to sign my yearbook, and I don't know them anymore. I don't have contact with them anymore. I don't have a relationship with them because I put off the relationship. But then I noticed it just didn't happen to high school. When I graduated high school, I went to college. And I made new best friends at college. When I graduated college, you know what happened? I lost contact with them people. I put off the relationship with them. And it seemed to happen again. When I left college and began to have my first employment opportunity, I have the people you work with became your new best friends. But over the years, when I was in chicken business, I moved from one state and one company to the other. And before you know it, you've lost contact with all those people. You put off that relationship and no longer you have any contact with them anymore. You can't even call a relationship. When you put off a relationship, it results in broken relationships or no relationships at all. And it just seems like it's something we do over the years. But then we take that thought and we begin to apply it in directly to our lives as believers because if there's any relationship we ever have in our lives that must continue, that should never be put off, it is with our new best friend, which is Jesus. We should never put off our relationship with Jesus. 
We should never want that relationship to be broken. I mean, I desire for myself and for every one of us for us to never lose our first love for Jesus. We should always want to desire to know him and know him better and forever. Do not put off your relationship with Jesus because it leads to possibly losing the love that you should have for him. The question we have was, is the church today losing this first love? And perhaps, to some extent, it has. But as we begin to consider that question and apply it to our lives, we recognize how we must continue to not let it grow cold, but to let it grow further each and every day. To continue that love, continue that relationship, to make contact with Christ every day. Next week, because we're out of time for today, it goes by too fast, we're going to get into specifics of how we can make sure that happens. I mean, today we see the question entertained before us is, has the church today lost its first love? We'll continue. we got so much more to cover yet. We ain't even got to the part about the Nicolaitans, which just begs for explanation. But we're out of time for today. And so we conclude today with the fact that we need to make sure if we are not in a current relationship with Jesus Christ, or if somehow we've walked backwards in that relationship or began to put it off, that today we walk forward and find it again. Revive today and recommit to Jesus. Do not put off the relationship. Don't take for granted that your best friend, Jesus Christ, he's going to be there for every day, but don't take that for granted. Make contact with him each and every day. Do not put it off. Father, Lord, we come before you today, Lord, just recognizing that as we go through these churches, that it can apply to us in modern day and it can apply to our lives. Lord, we're thankful for how we can read a text written so many years ago when a man exiled to an island, how he received a vision, but how he can speak truth to us. Lord, while we're speaking about truth, perhaps we need to pray for this generation. We're thankful to have a lot of generation right here with us today. These teenagers, Lord, that carried in these bags, that carried in the chips and stuff today, Lord. What a blessing they is here. they're here today. Lord, I pray they hear the message each and every day and commit themselves to you. We'll continue to lead and direct them into the way that they need to receive. We pray for their future, Lord. We pray for the future for the friends. Lord, we also today want to examine ourselves, and we pray today for you to reveal yourself to us. When we begin to have a moment of reflection here in a little bit, we pray, Lord, that we'll examine ourselves deep inside in our heart. And if, Lord, somehow we've put a distance between ourselves and you, we'll close that distance today. Recommit ourselves, Lord, to you and your love. So thank you for how this message today can introduce that thought to us and can speak to us today. As always, we're thankful for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice he made for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.